Okay, let me go ahead and call us back into session. We got a little bit delayed by the snafu with the film. Ah, here's Philip. Good. Just worried. And I'm pleased to introduce the first panel session, which is on war and the American century. That is among the various long shadows of World War I. Uh, one fell on the United States, and um, we're going to continue the metaphor. Um, enhanced the links between the United States and Europe and helped to reshape them. And so one of the themes for us as we think about the longer implications of the war is to think about the way in which the American uh, relationship to Europe shifted during what I suggested earlier was almost uh, uh, 40 years of um, warfare and the way in which there was a, a long restructuring uh, going on in the uh, Western world. We have two terrific speakers for this session. Uh, Philip Bobbitt, who is the Robert Wexler Professor of Jurisprudence at Columbia University, also teaches um, at the uh, University of Texas, directs the Center for National Security at Columbia, um, a distinguished legal and political thinker. Um, Richard Sennett, uh, who is Professor of Sociology at the LSE and co-chair of the New Urban Charter Program at the UN Habitat, I think known to most of you, a co-organizer of this conference, um, among many other things. And I'm just the chair. So um, let us um, begin. Philip, you're in the program first. Do you want to right. launch the discussion? Shall I? You may, as you like. On the teacher evaluations <coughs> that have become customary in American universities, my students complain that I don't answer their questions. It seems that when a student puts a particular question to me, I'm apt to answer another question, perhaps the one I would have preferred to have been asked. I plead guilty to this uh, infraction, if that's what it is. As I see it, my lectures are not press conferences but are the means by which I urge my students to confront certain problems and to learn certain methods of dealing with those problems. It's a bit high-handed, I grant you, but then law professors are not noted for our diffidence. I mention all this because I have decided to ignore the terms of reference <laughs> provided me by the conference organizers and to answer instead what I take to be the most important legacy of the Great War for the United States, and indeed for all states. That is the role the war played in changing the constitutional order of states and what that change portends for our future. But perhaps I should at least uh, first explain why I rejected the proffered questions. They were meant to be provocative, I imagine, and uh, they certainly provoked me. They consist of a number of charges against the United States uh, dressed up as questions. Let me take them in order. There are eight. First, it is announced, and I quote, that World War I made the United States begin to think of Europe as part of its sphere of influence, end quote. In fact, the war had exactly the opposite effect, ushering in 20 years of entrenched isolationism by the American public and both political parties. Second, we're told that, quote, some Americans flattered themselves to have won the war for Britain and France. 
That is hardly either surprising nor particularly flattering since it was precisely what happened. At least that was what Lloyd George and Clemenceau said happened when the U.S. introduced almost one and a half million troops into the European conflict that had been stalemated and cost countless British and French lives. That's also the conclusion reached in the recent book, World War I, by Sir Michael Howard, uh, the most admired, as he is the most profound of contemporary military historians. Perhaps a brief review of events in 1918 would be helpful to remind us of just how the war ended. After the slaughter of British forces at Passchendaele, the disintegration of the Russian army in the east, and the Italian debacle at uh, Caporetto, the Allies braced for a fresh German offensive. By March 1918, the German army had a superiority of almost 30 divisions over the Anglo-French forces. If the German attack succeeded, Allied lines would be pierced and either the British forces surrounded by a sudden German move to the Channel or Paris menaced by a drive on the French capital. The German high command mobilized for this great gamble. If the offensive failed, German resources would be depleted at the very time when U.S. strength would grow from 300,000 American troops to uh, 1.2 million in July. By early June, German forces had advanced to within 30 miles of Paris and had inflicted enormous casualties on the Allies, but their own losses were almost as staggering. On July 18, the Allies counterattacked at Soissons and Chateau Thierry, with the Americans distinguishing themselves in the latter battle. On August the 8th, an Allied offensive at Amiens achieved a breakthrough. The German high command began pressing its government for an armistice. On October the 8th, a new German chancellor from Baden directly addressed the Americans, asking President Wilson for immediate negotiations on the basis of the 14 points, the American white paper. In reply to the German plea, Wilson asked for a categorical acceptance of all the conditions laid down in the 14 points. His advisor, Colonel House, was able to persuade Wilson to add an insistence on such military restraints as, I quote, would make the renewal of hostilities on the part of Germany impossible, end quote. The German government reluctantly gave its assent on October 12th, adding that, quote, its object in inter end discussions would be only to agree upon the practical details of the applications of these precise terms, end quote. Third, it is claimed <coughs> that because Americans, quote, worried about how this sphere of influence would be made legitimate, Woodrow Wilson was moved to create the League of Nations, end quote. Nothing could be less accurate. Spheres of influence were an anathema to Wilson. Just listen to what he said to the Congress in an address on February 11, 1918. Peoples are not to be bandied about from one sovereignty to another by an international conference or an understanding between great powers. National aspirations must be respected. Peoples may now be dominated and governed only by their own consent. Self-determination, Wilson said, is not a mere phrase. It is an imperative principle of action. We cannot have general peace for the asking or by the mere arrangements of a peace conference of influential governments. It cannot be pieced together out of individual understandings between powerful states. This war, 
had its root in the disregard of the rights of small nations and of nationalities. The principles to be applied in any settlement are that peoples and provinces are not to be bartered about from sovereignty to sovereignty as if they were chattels and pawns in a game, even a great game, now forever discredited as the balance of power. End quote. Fourth, the conference terms of reference charge that, and I quote, the same mixture of jingoism and internationalism was roused in the U.S. in World War II, end quote. This is a very strange way to characterize the reactions of a country that was the subject of a surprise attack by Japan and against whom a few days later declarations of war were made by Germany and Italy. Whatever emotions were roused, they certainly weren't roused by Americans, but by their fascist attackers. From this, the conference questions move on to the future in a rather tendentious way. Quote, have we Americans finally emerged post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan from this shadow? Have we lost the jingoistic belief that Americans can set other people's affairs in order? End quote. These are asked in the same way one might ask if one has stopped beating one's wife. In the many years I have served in various U.S. administrations and the countless meetings I have endured, I have never once heard a U.S. official refer to our NATO allies or to Europe generally as composing an American sphere of influence. Moreover, it is surprising to be asked whether the U.S. has finally conceded that it cannot help other states set their affairs in order, when that is precisely what happened in Europe after World War II. The Marshall Plan, the World Bank, the United Nations itself are all examples. Indeed, the failure to do so after World War I was one of the principal causes of World War II. Sixth, we are asked, shall we say somewhat disingenuously, whether, and I quote, the U.S. no longer believes in our country's power to do the right thing, having become more amoral, end quote. This week, indeed this morning, the papers report that the U.S. is leading the effort to contain the Ebola outbreak in Africa, that it has organized a growing coalition to confront ISIS, the Islamic State, in the Middle East, trying to stop a campaign of religious warfare waged by means as horrific as any in our memory. And it has pledged to defend the territorial integrity of small countries in Europe in which it has no discernible material interest. Seventh, it is suggested that the U.S., quote, no longer subscribes to international norms of justice. And finally, eighth, that it has ceased, quote, to be supportive of institutions which would attempt to speak truth to power, end quote. Which institutions are these? Universities, a free press, a vast panoply of interest groups that lobby the government <clears throat> on environmental policies that allege government corruption, that inveigh against administration policies. The phrase, speak truth to power, which has been debased into a self-serving cliché, actually originates with the Quakers. Is it to be suggested that the U.S. suppresses religious freedom, too? These are not really questions. They're allegations. If 
perhaps in some cases even sneers, and they have as little to do with the long-term consequences of the Great War as the propaganda of RT has to do with press freedoms. So I propose to dispense with them and to suggest that there are more fruitful questions posed by the legacy of World War I, and that the most important of these to our present situation has to do with the ideas of self-determination and its impact on the constitutional order of states. That legacy is the death of one constitutional order, the imperial state nations that dominated the 19th century and of which George Kennan was quite fond, and the triumph of another, the industrial nation-states within which we currently live. On January 21, 1924, Vladimir Lenin died. Thirteen days later, on February the 3rd, Woodrow Wilson died. It is now clear that the latter was by far the more successful revolutionary. Wilson's Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, saw that self-determination was a phrase, and I quote, simply loaded with dynamite, end quote. As he remarked in a confidential memorandum in December 1918, and I quote, what effect will this have on the Irish, the Indians, the Egyptians, and the nationalists among the Boers? Will it not breed discontent, disorder, and rebellion? Will not the Mohammedans of Syria and Palestine and possibly of Morocco uh, rely on it? How can it be reconciled with Zionism? End quote. As Karl Mayer observed, quote, Lansing's alarm was shared by the imperial victors in World War I who successfully diluted Wilsonian policies at the peace conference. Britain, France, and Italy firmly reject self-determination for their own colonies. They applied the principle, however inconsistently, only to defeated powers. But even so, however grudgingly, they lent force to a slogan seized on by aggrieved peoples everywhere to challenge imposed rule. In the society of nation-states, the most important right of a nation was the right of self-determination. This, however, posed a conundrum for that society, given the interpenetration of national peoples in multi-ethnic states. When did a nation get its own state? Was it when a majority of the people of the state agreed, or when a majority of the national group, a nation, which was usually a minority of the persons in the state as a whole, demanded it? And when one national group held power, what were the limits of its treatment of other national groups, so-called minorities, given that one purpose of the nation-state was to use law in furtherance of the cultural and moral values of the nation. Why indeed should not the Russian sympathizers in eastern Ukraine be allowed to secede? And then why not the majority of Muslim populations in border areas in Serbia? Why should not these be allowed to remain and simply secede from the Serbs that themselves seceded. If, as in Mesopotamia, borders are arbitrary that do not correspond to the ethnic demographics of the local community, what precisely qualifies as the defining community? The IRA has long argued, for example, that the referendum to which the United Kingdom has agreed for the determination of the future of Northern Ireland must be based on an island-wide rather than a six-county franchise. If they're wrong, because Northern Ireland is in some way demographically distinct, Protestant, for example, 
then what of the minority Catholics in the six counties? Shouldn't they be allowed to have a referendum limited to themselves on the same theory that allowed the Northern Irish to exclude the Southern Irish from their referendum? The principle of self-determination bedevils the nation-state. It is the original sin of the constitutional order, present at the creation of the American nation-state in the 1860s and 70s and the German nation-state in the early 1870s, the two first models of this archetypal form. The nation-state's sin, if that's the right way to put it, is that it promises to deploy a state on behalf of a nation when nations as such, cultural and ethnic groups, are a distinct categorical entity from states, which are legal and strategic structures. Quote, all nations are entitled to their own states, end quote, is really a way of saying all states must define and locate their nations, a lesson that Slobodan Milosevic, among others, clearly learned in his post-communist phase. The society of nation-states has no more significant responsibility than to manage this paradox. If every nation gets its own state, then who decides the territorial extent of the state when a national group is unevenly spread over many countries, dwelling within other national groups and encompassing other groups that dwell within it? Each nation-state develops its form of the state for strategic purposes. That is, it selects a legitimate form of the state that will serve as an effective military instrument to resist coercion. But if every nation gets its own state, then the strategic imperative of the state turns inward to civil war. As each ethnic and cultural group attempts to assert itself, and the state endlessly divides and redivides along smaller and smaller and more violent sociological lines. If the strategic imperative of the state instead turns outward to conquest, then each state collects its nationals and those territories important to their welfare, adding new members, subsuming them, and then asserting their right to exist within a single state, much as Hitler asserted about Germans living abroad. This is more than a problem. It is a paradox because every nation-state also defines the nation for constitutional and legal purposes. That is, it determines which cultural group, on behalf of whose welfare, the resources of the state will be deployed. But how can every nation get its state when every state must choose its nation? It may seem to us today altogether natural that states should occupy fixed and contiguous places on maps that was not always the common conception. And it may also seem obvious that the geographical division of the world into states should fit the division of mankind into nations. But that, too, was not always so. As H.G. Wells put it, that the political world should be divided into nation-states, that this must be so in order to ensure stability, would seem to be self-evident propositions, were it not for the diplomatist at Vienna who evidently neither believed nor understood anything of the kind and thought themselves free to carve up the world as one is free to carve up a boneless structure as a cheese. One could argue, as indeed Castlereagh did as a young man when he attempted to disband the Irish government, that the coincidence of political boundaries with ethnic ones is actually a recipe for conflict and violence. <clears throat> but Castlereagh and his counterparties at the Congress of Vienna 
We're ratifying an international system composed of imperial state nations, not industrial nation states. It was Wilson and his counterparties at Versailles who ratified the triumph of a new constitutional order, the industrial nation state. How is that act relevant to the present and to our immediate future? It was not very long ago that Kenichi Omai and Tom Friedman and others were predicting a borderless world. Developments in finance, technology, and communications would lead to the inexorable decline of borders and the nation state. But just last week, Gideon Rockman observed in the FT that somebody forgot to tell the politicians and the voters about this. Although Rockman was mainly writing about the Scottish referendum, movements in Catalonia, Lombardy, Quebec, Kosovo, Sri Lanka, Central Africa, Kurdistan, all suggest that nationalism is very much alive. Does this mean the nation state is also thriving, as Rockman implies? Far from it. Indeed, our confusion about what constitutes a constitutional order is making it difficult to make an intelligent analysis and intelligent choices. First, we have to appreciate that though we live in the constitutional order of industrial nation states, these did not originate at Westphalia. Indeed, the principle by which the territoriality of the state was established, the famous cuius regio eus religio, did not originate itself at Westphalia. We have lived so long in nation states, about a century and a half, that we use the terms nation and state interchangeably, as does the UN Charter. But this is a solecism. Nations are not states, as we know from those nations that don't have states, like the Palestinians or the Kurds or the Cherokee. When we see that the nation state is but the latest iteration of constitutional orders that began in the 16th century with princely states, we can better appreciate that there can be a new constitutional order within which nationalism can thrive. Alas, we can learn this from ISIS, the Islamic State. For what we are seeing is the birth of a new constitutional order, the market state, that is in itself neither violent and malicious like the Islamic State or benign and multicultural like the European Union. The market states devolved, decentralizing transnational forms are actually more hospitable to nations than the nation state ever was. For nation states tended to favor a particular national group, the Han, the English, the Russian, at the expense of other nations within those states. The failure to appreciate the looming emergence of market states is evident in the Scottish campaign for statehood. While Scottish nationalists sought a new nation state, which would have been a catastrophe as Scottish voters realized, they were looking in the wrong direction. What they really should have sought, and may well gain still, is autonomy within the larger market state of the European Union. The death of the idea of the superstate in Europe, a sort of expanded nation state, like the death of the nation state, the death of, the, of a grand union dominated by the nations of France and Germany, is actually a step forward. For in steering itself away from the doomed form of nation-states, the Union has made possible the future for its various nations. Lombardy, the Basque region, Flanders, would never be viable on their own 
but with access to a transnational continental market state, these nations may thrive. In retrospect, the obvious question that the Wilson war policy raises is, for what? For what did the Americans send ultimately 1.5 million infantrymen into Europe? Surely not for technical violations of American neutrality. American flagships were in fact being used to resupply an arm of belligerent Britain, just as the Germans charged. When the U.S. finally went to war, our disregard of the rights of neutral nations was just as great as that previously exhibited by the Allies, to whom we were constantly complaining. The Germans could hardly be blamed for halting shipping in the only way the Royal Navy permitted them, while the Royal Navy itself stopped U.S. ships illegally and simply seized them by virtue of its command of the ocean surface. Was it for the sinking of U.S. ships by German submarines then that the U.S. went to war? Surely the remedy for this, as for the attacks by terrorists on American civilians, is retortion. It can hardly be proportionate or even rational to decide that the death of innocent Americans requires a world war for just retaliation. America went to war in 1917 in order to create a system, a new international system, for a new constitutional order, one whose legitimacy would be based upon self-determination and democracy. Within this system, all states were to be legally equal because Wilson believed that such a system would prevent future wars among the democracies. A world order based on a German victory would not be one that was ultimately safe for the Americans, but neither would an allied victory that merely reinstated in Europe the various systems of the imperial state nations that had collapsed in the first, in the first place. As Lord Devlin, a Wilsonian biographer, shrewdly observed, indeed Wilson never lost his distrust of allied motives. The allies did not, he believed, truly care about democracy and the right to self-government. And of course, Wilson was right. The Allies, like the central powers they fought, shared a European conception of sovereignty that held the state's authority to have descended from their predecessors and not to arise directly from the people. Even democratic states, like Britain and France, held sovereignty to be distinct from elections. Sovereignty was an attribute of the state. European states were not partial sovereigns. In Britain, Elections were suspended during World War II, but not in the United States. The reason the Americans entered the Great War was to allow a democratic form to fulfill its role in creating the proper relation between state and nation. These are Wilson's words when he announced he was taking the U.S. to war, and I quote, But the right is more precious than peace, and we shall fight for the things which we have carried nearest to our hearts, for democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own governments, for the rights and liberties of small nations, for a universal dominion of right by such a concert of free people as shall bring peace and safety to the nations and make the world itself at last free. End quote. For us, the legacy of World War I, for Americans, for all of us, is to create a new constitutional order to accomplish these historic objectives. Thank you.
Richard Sennett. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to speak to you on a little more informally, on, but on a, a related um, topic, which is the effect of um, World War One on our concept of, of human rights, and um, it's again something in which uh, the American presence uh, is important without being playing a determinative role. And I guess the best way I can explain this is by uh, quoting again Woodrow Wilson to uh, his, uh, um, um, his supporter and uh, uh, in the White House, Colonel House, in 1918, um, saying that the war will wake people up to their human rights. It seems like a very anodyne kind of cliched statement. And in fact, it asserts something uh, or represents something which is enormously problematic. That is the relationship of awareness of human rights and violence. Uh, and Wilson's notion is that experience of violence is necessary for peoples in Europe, uh, but also in the United States, to become aware of their own human rights. And I want to just unpack this uh, briefly today. It's something I, uh, I think is extremely complex. It's not American in its cast. Um, it goes back to um, a point of view that Kant rejected a uh, century and a quarter before. It's foundational to our own ex sense of how human rights are experienced, but it's something that took on an American cast in the First World War. Uh, and it matters to us today because in events like... Um, Barack Obama's uh, decision to, to contest ISIS, something almost Wilsonian is said, that this violent abrogation of human rights, in, in his words, uh, this experience of violence with the beheadings and so on, puts us in mind about the right of every human being uh, to be protected uh, uh, as a rights-bearing subject from arbitrary uh, violent activity. Uh, another negative of this is a Hong Kong student whom I heard on the tube uh, yesterday uh, night who said, I hope that it won't come to pass that our human rights in Hong Kong uh, will only be appreciated if the government attacks us violently. Right. It's a very, very insightful statement uh, that it shouldn't take violence 
to make us understand that uh, other people understand that we have human rights. So this is the terrain that I'd like to unpack a little for you. And I first should say something about that remark to Colonel House. You should know that Colonel House, if you can imagine this, was a combination of John Reed and Alistair Campbell a century ago. If you can put that kind of figure together in your mind, you uh, uh, understand the Svengali-like character that Colonel House was. Um, Wilson uh, was somebody who was a far more uh, complicated in another sense uh, character because he was an American who was not very American. Uh, he was somebody who had, in fact, an enormous fear of the capacity of, um, the Amer- of American culture to trample on uh, human rights. It was borne out for him in the wake of the Second World War itself, which saw the first great flowering of anti-communist hysteria. These are called the Palmer Raids. They prefigure Senator McCarthy. And Wilson, uh, even in his very perilous condition by then, he died a stroke, recognized that this was something that the assertion of the fact that anyone has human rights was something that Americans did not, in fact, learn for the First World War. Again, this was the period just after the First World War where the Jim Crow racial laws in the United States became their most grinding and oppressive. Uh, Again, some historians have argued in response to the experience that American soldiers and the American public had in World War I. So for Wilson to say this is not something that represents American opinion. He's an American who has a deep, deep distrust, Tocquevillian distrust, of the capacity of Americans uh, to suppress rights. And it's a very, very... uh, a courageous statement. Like Philip, I don't believe that his letter to Colonel House is uh, sponsored as a cover for American imperialism. That is that either the self-determination of states or the assertion that he, all human beings are rights-bearing subject is merely... Um, uh, a kind of fig leaf for the operations of American power. If that were true, it's, I don't know quite what the metaphor would be, but if that were true, it's a, it's a rather poisonous fig leaf. Uh, in the Vietnam War, for instance, the government was held to account precisely because of uh, Wilsonian ideas of self-determination, and even more of that, the rights of ordinary citizens, ordinary uh, dwellers in Vietnam. Um, it, was, it, it was one of the reasons that the war was delegitimated in, in the United States. 
So it's, it's, it wouldn't be correct to think of this as uh, simply a kind of post hoc rationalization of power. It's something that he deeply meant. Now, why this pairing of violence and human rights? It may seem that uh, the root of violence, which is violation, would explain it. That is, that any violent circumstance uh, seems to be a, a, a kind of uh, a violation of some prior uh, condition of an existing rights-bearing subject, which would mean that people feel they have rights before they experience violence. Wilson did not believe this. He wrote memorably again to Colonel House that human rights are a creation rather than, as in the Enlightenment, an endowment. That is to say that the Wilsonian idea is not like the Enlightenment idea that all people are born with certain, with, you know, certain capacities, for, uh, certain uh, inherent rights. Uh, specifically, he contested the notion that the French Revolution was an attempt to empower and give rights to ordinary people. And we know historically that that's, of course, true. But for him, a human rights regime is something bred by experience rather than carried uh, as though it were DNA in the human being. So what then creates? Why this association of violence and human rights? For Wilson, and I think for the other people around him, I haven't found any letters from Colonel House. He seemed to be a remarkably discreet letter writer, Colonel House. But for Wilson and the people around him, one of the key factors in this was time. That is to say that, you know, violence flares all the time. But the war, the Great War, had gone on for four years of senseless violence on both sides. And for Wilson, it's the very elapse of so much violent time which breeds in people both the right and the desire to define ways in which, uh, they're, uh, in, in, in which they have rights. Put this another way. In 1914, the expectation on both sides was that the war would last three or four months. Everybody thought it was going to be a quick war. By 1918, uh, people had given up that hope. And by the time they had given it up, by having such prolonged experience of violence, they thought that there was something inhuman about the kind of violence that they were experiencing, something that was not right, that was not ethical, because of violence was sustained. Um, I'd say that if we look at this as a, a long shadow today of the Great War, that that explanation is 
not one we would accept for the, for the long shadow of this durable association of violence and human rights. For us, it's an association that is made theatrically. That is, that violence is a kind of theater of human rights. If you think about what's been happening in Iraq and Syria over the last few years, um, these are people who have been suffering ever since the... They've been suffering for a very long time. But attention to their sufferings only happens when there are theatrical events like a beheading, which is a beheading of one or two people. Hundreds of thousands of people have died in Iraq and Syria. Well, we don't attend to that. So I would say that in lieu of time, which was Wilson's idea of what generates a desire for human rights on these terms, I would say it's theater, which is a very, very disturbing uh, phenomenon. The other effect of associating human rights with experiences of violence is that it natures what these rights are. It, it limits what these rights are. It narrows the field of human rights to protection against corporal violation, excluding social and economic rights which belong to civil society. That is to say, if you think about this association as one in which violence provokes theatrically a desire for human rights, then what you're not going to think about are, for instance, labor rights, which in civil society, uh, you're not going to think that the minimum wage is a right. This is far from the sphere of bodily violation. Uh, you're not going to think, if you're an immigrant, that you have certain rights which you bear with you as a worker. This is far, again, from the sphere of this association of violence and human rights. Um, so in a certain sense, this Wilsonian formulation excludes civil society from the sphere of human rights, confining it to the theater of war. Now, like Philip, I am an enormous admirer of Wilson, this complicated person who by chance becomes the president of a nation that he doesn't fully believe in and does something remarkable by making this association of warfare with the pursuit of justice, either of self-determination or of the possession of human rights. But admiring him doesn't lead me, as you will understand from these remarks, to believe in him. I think for us, a better referent for human rights 
is the domain of civil society. Uh, in other words, that the, 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 the associations that Wilson made are associations we should no longer make. I said at the beginning that I'm a kind of Kantian about this, and there is a Kantian uh, text of Immanuel Kant, which for me is a t- touchstone on this. It's the text called Eternal Peace. You probably all know it. Can't be at the LSE without having read this several times and memorized key sections of it. And so, therefore, you will remember that a key argument of Kant's eternal peace is that rights are not based on violence, that rights uh, do not come out of the Leviathan, as Hobbes imagined long ago that they did. Uh, but that rather, in a condition of eternal peace, not that he believed it would ever happen, but that as a thought experiment we had to imagine it. If human beings were not killing each other, what then? What sort of rights would they have in a condition in which violence was not the touchstone of their existence? And they would have what we call today economic rights and social rights rights which are not political in the sense that they're protections against being hurt uh, physically. Kant sees that thought experiment as a way to empower uh, the concept of rights, but it can only be done for Kant by walking out of the sphere of the nation-state. Great uh, disbeliever in, in Herder was the f- first to assume, assert that people have uh, a coherent kind of community to which the nation state should express and embody. Kant didn't believe that. He thought that rights were civil society, but that they were not cultural. This is a great, great discovery. And I think it's a discovery that we've lost, that we are rights-bearing subject by virtues of what we can do, what we can think, but not because of the identity we have as members of a particular culture. Um, So I'd like to conclude this by saying that I think we need to walk out of the shadow, or rather we need to... um, we need, we need to surrender our, the associations that Wilson made for, for very, very compelling reasons when he wrote to Colonel House. We need to walk out of that shadow. And this, it seems to me, we, when I looked at the Daily Mail this morning, I thought we are not, we in Britain, are not ready to do the Daily Mail celebrates Britain's possible um, withdrawal from the European Union's Convention on Human Rights because that convention, in fact, is a Kantian document. It talks about the rights of economic rights to minimum wage, uh, ideal of minimum wage to certain labor protections, uh, 
to the rights of immigrants in the places where they settle. And um, the Daily Mail, and I think the Telegraph, too, probably the Telegraph, would be all the same, said, we have to get rid of this slavery. We can't be slaves to this human rights convention. We want something that are British rights. Now, of course, we, what does that mean? I think our notion of human rights in Britain is more in the groove of Wilsonian rights. That is, protection from physical violation. So a, a way to say this would be that if we do leave the European Union, we abandon its civil society Kantian version of a human rights regime we'll be walking back into the conditions where we need a war in order to wake us up to the fact that we are rights-bearing subjects. And we shouldn't walk backward in time that way. All right we have a chance to move forward in time with some questions. Uh, let me ask you to identify yourselves as you ask your questions, and uh, uh, if they're for one or the other of uh, the speakers, say so in particular. Go ahead in the third row here. There's your microphone. Third row here. Um, the microphone has just run out the door. Shall I just ask anyone? No, because it's recorded, so she'll come back. I'm sure she'll come back. Here she comes. Here she comes. Third row on this side. Uh, thank you. Uh, the term Great War is a disgusting, disgraceful, and anti-intellectual term. And it's a term I hope will be taught as such in all our schools. Until the term that should be used, which is more appropriate, accurate, and possible give intellectual uh, course upon is genocide of the working class. This is a term that should only ever be used. Until this term is used, you can, you're only part of the grand illusion that this film demonstrates. Thank you. Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Get Your Share on Twitter. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've got one on the right just next to you on this side and then in the back. Bernard Casey, less a question, more a reflection, but I was interested in these market states. I was also interested in potential pre-market states which satisfied some of the conditions it seemed to me that we were looking at. Now, I'm a social security... When I am looking for light relief, I study late antiquity... And I am terribly interested in the empire of Eastern Rome, which survived for a very long time as a community of lots of different nations and lots of different languages, but certain commonalities. And even the early Ottoman period which succeeded it, and the fact that groups within those um, uh, communities, pre-market, had certain shared values which allowed them to coexist with one another. Um, these actually were states that were created by violence, to link back, 
Um, we then have this thing which we kind of look at, which is the European Union, which is something else which is not created by but out of violence, certainly. And I wonder whether we can see potential analogies between the European Union and some recognition of this market state, but also can recognise that potentially some of these communities actually existed and existed for a very long time and relatively successfully um, in previous times. Do you want to go ahead and answer that or take a couple more questions first? Philip? Uh, it seems, that seems to me uh, <coughs> quite an interesting and uh, insightful observation. The European Union is, I think, the most uh, advanced, the most um, innovative example of an emerging market state, but not the only one. And while there are historic examples of large multicultural transnational empires. You mentioned the empire of Rome around Constantinople, perhaps its successor, the Ottoman Empire would be another example. Those aren't really market states because a market state is a name for a sort of an evolutionary period in the life of the state. So while a child may play baseball and a major league player may play baseball, the child isn't going to be in the major leagues because he's a child. It's part of his development and evolution. We don't have, despite some of the rhetoric, we don't have empires today. We don't have empires because we can't have empires, not because we don't, we've lost our imperial lust, just because it's a legal term of evolution that's it's been superseded. Okay. In the back. Uh, sorry, what about my question that you are I think that was a comment. Was it a question? Uh, do you not agree with the fact that the Great War is... That's not a question. Do you not agree? What would be a question? Well, what would be a question? What do you want to know from him? Uh, do you feel like you are the Great Return Great War totally disrespects all the people that were murdered during that period? I suppose the war is not a, is rarely an example of uh, respect for your adversary. You're trying to kill him, for heaven's sakes. Uh, but if you mean, would I agree with your rather poetic view that the uh, definition of war is genocide of the working class, then I'd say, I, no, I don't. I think it's, a, it's sort of a polemical way. It sounds like a nice slogan. I'm sure it fits Twitter. But what would you do with World War II? It was fought in part to stop genocide. Would you say it was a counter-genocide? I, it, it does, there's so many wars in so many different ways that are fought in so many different places for so many motives by many groups, sometimes of which the working class is the vanguard, that it doesn't seem to me anything other than a slogan. In the back. My name is Philip fascinating Do you have the microphones right behind you? Anybody who advocates the withdrawal of Britain from the uh, European Conventions, I think those politicians 
were somewhat ignoramus, ought to be made to read the case studies of the Kreischer members uh, who were brought before the People's Courts in Germany in the closing stages of the Second World War. I think if they read such insights, they would have a rather different attitude and a much more positive attitude towards the uh, Council of Europe and the way it operates. It's interesting that the La Grande Lucion finishes with a view, an optimistic view of Switzerland. Um, and of course, it's interesting that Switzerland during the interwar period becomes very much the focus of internationalism, particularly centering on Geneva and the operation of League of Nations. Not just in terms of the League of Nations, but also in terms of transnational contacts, the development of functionist integration, uh, particularly, for example, through broadcasting, uh, with the uh, establishment of the original um, European Broadcasting Union in Geneva in 1925. So in a way, operating alongside the Wilsonian diplomacy, you also have this surge, this interwar surge towards internationalism and functionalist integration during the interwar period. Okay, okay. I think that was a comment again. Uh, yeah, there's David, yeah, over here. <coughs> um, at what point in World War I were the Allied population aware that genocide was going on? And to what extent were Kantian values and perspectives absorbed into German society in the shadow of World War I? Okay, let's take a couple of the men on the aisle in the center. Uh, I have a, a comment. Um, my name is Ron Mendel from University of Northampton. Um, it's a comment which hopefully will provoke discussion, but... I'll leave that up to you. Um, I found both talks highly provocative, particularly the emphasis on self-determination as being a linchpin of Wilsonian liberal internationalism, um, which has a legacy well beyond World War I. Um, what I wanted to raise, though, was the problematic nature of self-determination from a different perspective. Because Wilson, while president of the United States um, and subsequent presidents, had ordered troops into a number of Caribbean countries, including Dominican Republic, Haiti, Nicaragua. Um, some of these countries were occupied as long as 16 years. Um, so it raises the question about when self-determination rubs against a major power's geopolitical and economic interests, self-determination is not necessarily going to be respected. Because at the heart of liberal internationalism, was the belief by Wilson and subsequent presidents that American values were universal. They weren't limited to the United States. And that's what made it so attractive. So I think we need to kind of unwrap this notion of self-determination as being solely as a benign concept because it could, from another perspective, basically not be seen benign and be a threat to a particular country's interests. I mean, I think, I think that, that what you say is um, it is quite provocative. I mean, uh, you're talking about a reality, which is the, the use of self-determination as a kind of weapon for politics. But the last sentence you, you gave us is 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 really a, a terrible conundrum. What if, if not self-determination, then what? How do you resist an imperial power? 
or a hegemonic power. If you are uh, a state, if you are, for instance, um, uh, uh, Bosnia, what are the grounds on which you would re- resist uh, the Serbs? So, you know, it's a, what you say is absolutely makes sense as a function of how realpolitik uses self-determination, can use self-determination. But what's the alternative? <laughs> I would like to have an answer. So, but that's what I'm saying about this, you know? And that's why uh, the alternative, that's uh, where the self-determination and the rights issue become, become fused. Because the alternative is to think that the, the resistance should be on the basis of rights to resist violence rather than mem- that, that you are a rights-bearing subject in a fuller sense of the word. Uh, we fall back on that notion that if not cultural self-determination or national self-determination, then the only measure of resistance, calling for help, calling on the UN and so on, is that you're subject to viol- violation. Let me put this another way. Think about a kind of economic... Uh, de- um, struggle in which this, uh, Russia is starving a country of gas, natural gas, because it wants to assert its domination over them. Is that something in which the country that is being starved for natural gas has any, uh, any way of resisting? They're not being invaded, they're being economically impressed, oppressed their national self-determination is not called into question. They're simply being denied a resource. Uh, very little will, help, will happen, probably, to help that country uh, unless the Russians physically invaded it. That's the conundrum we're in. In fact, very little will happen to help them when the Russians do invade them, <coughs> which they already have, and little has been done to help them. I was curious about the other question, which was, if I understood it, at what point in World War I did we realize it was a genocide? Is that the question? In World War II, I see. This, as you know, is a subject of enormous uh, controversy among uh, historians, and there seems to be... a. a kind, at least to me it seems, that uh, it's not a question that will be settled by evidence because so many uh, of the leaders of the Allied States simply didn't want to confront the evidence that was before them. It, that uh, Either because they thought uh, that they needed to prosecute the war first, perhaps because they were... Uh, skeptical of reports, that they were exaggerated by the Jewish community or the Polish community. Uh, but for those that wanted to pursue the subject, I think there was evidence pretty early on that what was being conducted was a kind of a death campaign. What do you, what do you think, Richard? Well, certainly in Germany, I mean, uh, 
generally he more was, but by '34 it was evident yeah. that that there were concentration camps set up. Most of the came in. So uh, I, I think the, the the question is how long it took people to believe that something on that scale on that scale was really happening. Uh, and so. As you say, I think in the in the end, this is not something that evidence is yeah. going to settle mm -hmm. people. Um, uh, it's really interesting to me, in a personal way, about this because my teacher uh, Hannah Arendt knew the day that the Nazis came into power that she had to leave, that she had to pack her bags. And everybody, she told me once, when she told the people, I'm leaving, I'm not going to spend a week more in Germany. She did, in fact, spend more time. People said to her, oh, for God's sake, you know, don't be, don't be hysterical. Don't think, somebody said, you shouldn't think like a woman. <laughs> so, you know, the, the credibility of the Nazi threat was not something people, except for, for a few people like Hanan, really <coughs> understood when they came in. They didn't understand that the Nazis meant it. And I think a lot of Germans thought that they would only be in power for a year or two. Is that the idea? So, yeah. others on, on this question of World War II and Nazism, then let's go back to the retro thing. Yeah. So, yeah, don't. go ahead. Yeah, from the second row here. Yeah. Let's go back to the first one. And then we'll War. get back to First World War. No, if you don't, don't mind, I'd like to go back to the second because I'm very puzzled by the two eminent scholars who tell us that there is evidence, or, or, that, or rather, there is no evidence, or, or that historians are quarreling quarreling about evidence of genocide when the war started. There was no genocide when the war started, there were concentration camps. But these were not death camps. The yes, death camps true. started after the beginning of the war. In fact, the, yeah. if anything, we don't know if it is 41, 42, 43, um, you know, the, the extent yeah. to which there was an actual plan. The war did not start, nor could it have been started in order to stop a Nazi genocide. The war started because Germany invaded Poland. There is absolutely not the slightest problem among historians there. After the, the Americans entered the war because they were attacked. And then uh, they did not even declare war on Germany. It was Germany who declared war on the United States. It was Italy who declared war on the United States. You know, all that is, I mean, I'm interested in this because it creates the presuppositions for something which is relevant now, namely the justifications for war. The justifications for war change. You cannot uh -huh. now have a justification of war purely in terms of big power politics. What you need is a justification which has some kind of humanitarian element, exactly. self-determination, people are being killed, genocide, and so on. This is one of the long trails, certainly of the Second World War. I'm not sure about the first one. Yeah. Yeah. David, did you want to add to this? It's not on World Wars. Well, in a, in a way, it's on. Okay, D David Stevenson, International History Department. Um, I want to come back to this idea of, the, both the speakers touched on this, the idea of Wilson, Woodrow Wilson and his thinking as casting a long shadow 
um, over American foreign policy that, that takes us down to Obama and perhaps into the future beyond that. And I, I think I have a kind of yes and no on that. Uh, on the first point, Woodrow Wilson, during the First World War, as I think Philip Bobbitt brought out, was very successful down to the November 1918 armistice when he secured a ceasefire with both sides signing up in an appearance to American principles in the shape of the 14 points for the peace settlement. But when you go on from that and look at what happened at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, Wilson appears to be completely out of his depth in actually applying the principles to the national self-determination issues that he faced in Western and Eastern Europe. He brought with him a team of academics who he thought or hoped would provide him with what he called scientific answers to these problems, and they didn't. So he was then in a kind of rough-and-tumble negotiation with the British and French and ended up with something very different from what he'd expected, even on the League of Nations. He didn't actually have a clear idea of how that would function and had to follow largely a British text for the covenant. That's point one. Point two, I think if you need to move on and look at how the American administrations after World, during and after World War II, they, to some extent they saw themselves as heirs to Wilson. Of course, Roosevelt had served in the Wilson administration. Truman had been uh, an officer in the American army in France in 1918, serving with the artillery. So they, they looked back to World War I, but they were in a sense were heirs of Wilson, but also reacting against him and trying to re- avoid repeating what they thought had been his mistakes that had all been messed up. And the two lessons they particularly learned, I think, was number one, the importance of bipartisanship vital for Democrats and Republicans to work together and Congress and executive to work together. And the other thing, the importance of backing up a set of American principles with actual concrete actions, the Marshall Plan being particularly important, and need to show that those were not just serving a universal interest but were also serving American national interest. So those are two things I want to bring out, really. The, Wilson, I think, is a good phrase maker. And he raises the important issues and questions, but doesn't actually necessarily have answers to them that are workable for us today. The second point, the contrast between post-World War I and post-World War II, much more successful use of American power after World War II, partly because it was more, if you like, realistic. Okay. Now, I suppose someone in the back here on this side, yeah, he's got his hand up now. Uh, Hello, I'm uh, Michael Gavrilovich, native of former Yugoslavia, and I'd like to link the First World War, the Second World War, and by the way, the other war in 1999, where both Britain and the United States, for the first time since 1945, conducted a war against the Yugoslav state. Uh, uh, We haven't had a tribunal following the First World War. We had the Nuremberg Tribunal, and there is currently still, I believe, running a tribunal in The Hague, the Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. Uh, the supreme war crime at Nuremberg was not genocide or the Holocaust or the camps. The supreme war crime was starting the war. It is that that gave us, in fact, both world wars. However, for those of us who have followed what has been going on in The Hague, where some of the aspects of the Nuremberg Tribunal were included, the one thing that has been specifically excluded is the start of the war. And clearly the start of the war was the United States and 18 NATO countries. My question to you is what do you think of, the, uh, of starting the war? Is it a crime? Is it okay now to start a war against Iraq, Afghanistan or anyone else? 
Is this not a key question that has to be answered? What is a supreme war crime in the First World War and at what position do we take on the Second World War now? May I just uh, comment on the thoughts fresh? Please come in. Um, I think that is an important uh, question. Uh, But I think it it falls, I think, uh, for most people on a misunderstanding of warfare itself. War is not simply interstate violence or intrastate violence. War is a legal legal term. And most wars do not begin through aggression. Most wars begin through resistance to aggression. Now, there are exceptions to this. uh, And the attack on uh, Pearl Harbor may be an example of a war that has begun by an aggression. But typically what happens is that the aggressor asserts power through violence, and then at some point, the subject of that aggression resists, and you have the legal relationship that takes two parties to make war. The Nuremberg principle with respect to Germany is that it was indeed unlawful to uh, initiate aggression, but that is not the same thing as initiating war, quite the contrary. And that's, that's why the example of Yugoslavia doesn't fit the argument that, well, you see, you didn't approve of the Germans when they did it, but it was okay when the U.S. and the U.K. did it. Quite the contrary. It was an aggression against minority populations in Yugoslavia that, with both administrations kicking and screaming, had to be dragged into resistance. So I think the parallel, insofar as it's a legal one, isn't apt. Richard, did you want to add anything? May I call myself to add something on this, which is I'm concerned a bit about in the conversation that we, re- we think of two things not as an either or, but a both and, and that is the extent to which state making, the shape of states, and even nations, um, is influenced by conquest and domination and by participation. And we can join in a rhetoric in which we describe the nation as already existing and pre-political, or we can say it's merely derivative of states, but it seems to me the either-or is misleading because the examples always reflect elements of each. And and so we need to ask how much role for participation and citizenship there is, um, how it works. And this bears on the, the question Wilson has a very hard time answering, and it comes to some of David's comments, which is, um, who is the self of self-determination? When Richard was speaking, he said, well, if you um, respond, but of course, it's never you. The state is something, not a person in this. And so the, the metaphorical self of self-determination is of a construct that carries a lot of weight, that there is a collective national self that self-determines. And the way of talking about it is intrinsically, um, at best, obscuring and, if not, denying of internal differentiation in that. But one of the questions becomes, how is that self-constituted? Is it merely ascribed to be the people of this kingdom? Is it constituted out of something internal? And there are variable degrees of collective commitment to this or inequality in this, and they are manifest in various countries and in different ways in World War I. Um, There's not equivalent unanimity 
about national identity. World War I um, is, among other things, shaped by histories of conscription policies and various different conscription policies. In the United Kingdom, conscription is not imposed on the Irish. Well, very specifically not on the Irish, partly for political reasons, not because of an abstract principle entirely, but because um, Irish republicanism and movement for independence is gaining power. Many Irish people do participate. Um, Ireland is almost as fully represented in the war, but then immediately in the conclusion of the war we have independence, we have a different thing. So it's not an obvious thing what the self is of self-determination and who's, how that's, that's getting played out. Class variations in this. The, um, I think the, the element of, of truth in the strong statement about World War I at the beginning is that there is an element of um, differential regard for who, different classes, deaths, um, in this. That the structure of the war does involve um, people making decisions which have consequences for others, and in particular, um, members of the ruling class making decisions that have consequences for large numbers of working class people dying. Now, in varying degrees, the working class people sign up for this. So in one sense, the World War I is the, the anti-text to the Communist Manifesto saying workers of the world unite. Workers of the world actually, despite resistance, despite sometimes buying like sheep, on the way to the front lines, don't unite, don't end the war, and do shoot each other. Um, so it's not um, in, you know, an easy sort of answer because there is not only force applied by the elites to the workers, but some level of acquiescence in this um, in various nations. Um, the presence or absence of democracy shapes ways of assessing degrees of national's commitment. And to bring that to Yugoslavia, um, the response of the West to Yugoslavia um, is a much too complicated story to bear out, but I think does have interesting connections because there is in general a denying of the legitimacy, even the reality of Yugoslavia, that shapes a lot of the response. The West is surprisingly ready to, many in the West are surprisingly ready to believe ethnic nationalist stories about the different republics, about Slovenia or Croatia or whatever, an encouraging of ethnic nationalist stories. Cyrus Vance from the US actually rather directly says um, that um, these are clearly real states, uh, real nations, that Slovenia and Croatia have those rights, and Bosnia doesn't because it's multinational, something quite astonishing for an American Secretary of State to say. Um, and so th- there is this problem of what's the self that can self-determine? Is it only legitimate if constituted by an ancient ethnic history, or at least an alleged ancient ethnic history? Or are there other ways of constituting legitimacy for a self of self-determination? And that, of course, matters for internal politics, revolutions or democracy, as well as these external things. And if comment on that. Okay, here, and then the back, the man with red hair, and then the woman on the right. I want to try and take us back a bit to the First World War, but I also wanted to take us back to um, the question of genocides. I mean, one of the things which I find interesting with respect to the origins of the First World War is the visceral anti-Slav mentality both of the German Empire and of those who were ruling in the Habsburg Empire. I think that's important and we need to take it into account because we actually see that even today with sort of Slavic 
reactions of that, possibly from Putin. The other thing we need to think about with the First World War, it wasn't just that Germans were holding on until the last train in 1938 or 1939 um, in a belief that something was different. Don't forget that in 1916, in the First World War, there was a Jew count actually started that was there. I was interested by the film because we actually saw the two French people who were escaping through the mountains and we actually saw latent anti-Semitism which actually sort of actually came they sort of seemed to repair it but I wonder what you know sort of if they did survive and we got into the uh, next period what Marichal I think his name was would really have been doing with his um, friend Rosenthal who was there I think there are a lot of questions of its ethnicity whether it is in some cases the later version was anti-Jewish but it was this anti-Slav um, feeling that you know there are some superior people there are some inferior people which um, explains rather a lot of some of the more violent and dreadful things that we've been doing this century and just to come back to the good old Ottoman Empire in the good old early Ottoman Empire it didn't matter if you were Jewish or Orthodox Christian or Muslim the only thing you couldn't be was actually Catholic because they didn't like, but nobody actually liked the Catholics in that part of the world in any case. But you could be every one of those, and you could trade, and you, were, you just paid slightly lower taxes as if long you were as Muslim. you didn't try to participate in government in any way. Yeah, the man in the back, red hair, last row. Yeah, so thank you for your um, statements, very both, both very insightful. Um, considering the Marshall Plan, the financial aid given to Europe by Truman's presidency, uh, the consequent involvement in West Germany and the formation of the European frontier on which capitalism was maintained and communism was, com- um, communism was contained, <clears throat> to what extent do you believe the First World War had an effect on America's clear political and economic ties with Europe? Okay, back to the actual question of this session and the one that just three rows in front there on the side, yeah. right next to you. Yeah. Um, hello, everyone. I'm uh, Vagisha. I'm a political risk analyst. And uh, I would like the panelists to um, bring more light upon the correlation that they've been talking about self-determination and uh, rights, human rights assertion. How does, um, as Dr. Craig also mentioned and the other professors mentioned, that um, um, self-determination, uh, there is a selective identification for certain states to identify themselves as nation, while certain states are chosen not to um, help achieve that, uh, why don't we encourage nations, to, uh, borrowing the violence that wars bring in, why don't we encourage nations to um, talk more about greater autonomy to the regions that do suffer, that where minorities do express um, problems with the government or majority? Why don't we encourage uh, greater autonomy and thereafter move on to the self-determination aspects? Thank you. um, I think it is uh, something of a a conundrum because self-determination in the Wilsonian world is itself a human right, and yet self-determination by different nations often imperils the human rights of minorities. Nation-states uh, of the kind, the industrial nation-states to which I referred, sort of post-American Civil War states, 
use the power of law to reflect the moral commitments of, of the nation. So in America, if you are uh, against hate crimes, as you want to see, for have hate speech proscribed, uh, but you're also against uh, pornography, uh, then you might have someone who is a Democrat and a Republican, a liberal and a conservative, but who are both reflecting that commitment of the nation state, that its laws should instantiate the moral commitments of the nation. I think as long as we are in that form, in that very successful constitutional form, that nations will continue to oppress their minorities. And they will be quite wary of the sorts of tolerance and devolution uh, that you speak of. My second point is, yeah. really goes to something Craig said, and that is, it's quite right that not only do nations choose their states, but states choose their nations. They invent his histories for them, they give them phony pedigrees, they pretend to a historical coherence they don't in fact have. It's also true that there are many cross-cutting elements in a national group besides just ethnicity, language. You look at the, at the Greek city-states, you could say that their fundamental flaw was that although they were of one general culture and language, they could never coalesce. They hate each other so much <laughs> on cultural grounds, they could never, never ally for any lengthy period. Having said that, I do think that it's just a useful correction to not use the words nation as interchangeable with the word state. In the Bible, when Jonah says, of what nation are you, he's not saying, where do you pay your taxes? And, and the reason I think this is so important is that as we move forward towards, I think, the world that you may hope for, a more tolerant world, a, a, a world that is more hospitable to pluralism and to different ways of having value in the world, we'll be moving away from that, that, uh, that idea that nations and states are really one and the same. Richard. Well, I would say about, uh, if we think about uh, what we've been, the journey we've taken here, that I think our focus on the notion of autonomy and self-determination is uh, our obsession with that is one of the legacies of the Great War. And um, human rights are not defined by autonomy only. The right to a living wage is not an issue of autonomy per se. It's a different kind of political problem. And I, my own view is that um, modernity has cast the issue of self-determination, whatever that self is, uh, as a kind of primary right, whereas rights like participation, mutual respect, these seem filly to us. Um, uh, do you have a right to be treated as a human being by somebody else? To be respected if you're a different race, racial configuration? I think you do. It's not an issue that can be resolved. You know, I speak about this philosophically. I'm not a historian. It can't be resolved by thinking about autonomy. But we're obsessed with this subject. 
We're obsessed by what is a nation? What is a coherent culture? Because that's the way in which we think about ourselves as rights-bearing subjects. And that, I think, is the long, in my view, is it's a real shadow over understanding ourselves as, as, as rightful human beings. So it seemed to me a very World War I discussion. <laughs> so since we're running to the end of time for the discussion, let me just offer a couple closing words in this. One is that this is a really World War I discussion. World War I comes after a century, however, um, at least, of various forms of, of raising of these issues. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, and issues like nation um, and national autonomy uh, but figure throughout the 19th century without producing a European world war, but in various forms. The wave of 1848 revolutions, the springtime of peoples, depending on constructing the peoples. What's Byron doing dying in Greece, after all? Um, nationalism was not um, something that was only, as it were, jingoistically, whoever put that word in there, um, uh, something about one's own nation. There was a strong sense that versions of national um, liberation and independence were something that was a cosmopolitan right already at this point when, um, when Byron's off to try to liberate um, Greece. And so this is, is running through a very long history into this. One of the things that's happening is that there's a world system of states emerging. Philip said something important by pointing out the mythic quality of, of reference to 1648. These are all, almost all, imperial states. They're not uh, pure nation states as an idea. Later ideology would read into 1648 and the birth of the nation state. Um, but there is a world system of states which creates some of the stakes of this. Um, as, as Richardson, why people are anxious to claim states, why states, um, and, and how this gets tied up with nations, that sets the stage, and it set the stage in part in the very issue of colonialism, um, even before World War I. And I wanted to come back, though, to the World War I one point. Um, at the very end, I completely agree with Philip that we should distinguish the idea of state and the idea of nation. We should ask what work each does for the other, how the very idea of nation is transformed by the notion that every nation needs a state, and how the idea of state is transformed by the idea that legitimacy can only derive from a proper match to a nation. Right. Um, so they're connected, even though they're very distinct. And states don't just pretend to have nations. When people talk about inventing traditions and and the role of states, there's a, a suggestion often that it's all illusion and pretense, um, mere um, uh, games. But of course, states make nations in rather real material ways by educational systems, by enforcing um, linguistic uniformity, by roads that connect people, and indeed by war. So that, that World War I is not just reflecting some pre-existing nationalism, it is um, embedding a process of shaping national identity through military conscription, through the war itself, through the reporting that goes on about the war, through the kind of uh, posters that are being used to recruit people and, and sell war bonds, and through a whole variety of actions, it's actually engaged in nation-making for many of the combatants in the war, and this is one of the ways in which it shapes what goes on after it. 
Thank you all. We now have a lunch break for lunch.